All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod. There is another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. Sorry, well, uh, we're going to talk to Greg Upton now, an associate research professor at LSU Center for Energy Studies. And our friend, we, we're going to do this with certain industries. We decided to take a look back at the year uh, 2022 and a look ahead at 2023. And with that, we welcome in Greg Upton. Good morning, Professor. How are you? Doing great. How are you, Tommy? I am okay. I'm looking forward to the cold weather. Don't know about you. Yeah, I actually do enjoy the cold weather. I can do without the precipitation, but the the chilly weather is really nice. What effect is that going to have when something like that happens to the country, an Arctic front? Does that affect uh, heating oil prices? Does it affect refineries? Will it eventually affect what we pay at the pump? Oh, yeah, it definitely impacts the energy sector, but it really impacts more the natural gas demand. Mm -hmm. Um, And the reason for that is, of course, we use natural gas to heat homes and and those kind of things. And we use a lot more natural gas when it is colder. And so actually one of the biggest factors that is uh, used to forecast natural gas prices is that weather. And so what we see is whenever a cold front comes through, uh, natural gas demand goes up, and, and a lot of natural gas in storage is uh, we store it during the winter. And then that comes out of storage. It brings storage levels down, which then pushes, again, prices up. So, yeah, it definitely impacts uh, you know consumers through that. Not as much gasoline prices that you would pay at the pump. What is the situation with gasoline prices, where we were last year at this time, and what happened during the year, and what's 2023 likely to be like? Yeah, so uh, right now we're actually kind of in a good place with gasoline prices. So uh, here in Louisiana, it's about $2.75 a gallon. Um, Nationwide, it's a little over $3 a gallon. And, of course, nationwide, that peaked um, at over $5 a gallon or right at $5 a gallon after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And so if you if you look back to last February, um, of course, you know, uh, oil and natural gas prices were a little bit high. And the reason for that was the economic recovery post-recession. And then, of course, Russia invaded Ukraine. Countries like the United States put sanctions on Russian products. And what this did is it put really upward pressure on oil and gas prices globally. And so prices peaked nationwide, as as I mentioned, about $5 a gallon. And the good news is they've really come down to that $3 a gallon range. Right now, futures markets are anticipating that prices will will go down a little bit over the next year or so, but but not very much. And so if you look at oil prices are right now around $75 a barrel. Futures markets are anticipating that they might be $73 a barrel in a year from now. So what does that mean for gasoline prices? That means that consumers can kind of expect about what they're paying today um, for the remainder of of 2023. Russia is still in Ukraine, obviously. Um, Why did the prices, what caused them to come down, and what is the likelihood of something happening there that could cause them to go up again? Yeah, it's a great question. So whenever something unexpected happens, uh, such as, you know, Russia invading the Ukraine, 
what this does is it makes economic actors adjust, right? So it makes oil producers adjust, you know, how much they're producing. Companies that ship oil, of course, they make adjustments for, you know, how and where they're moving different types of, of crude oil and the same thing with refined products. And so there's kind of a, a time period uh, post a big event like that happening where you see a lot of high prices. But those high prices send an economic incentive to the market for other economic actors across the world to respond to that. And what we see in the, the medium to long term is that those high prices, people respond to those. And as people respond to those high prices, it actually brings prices down. And so kind of the good news for us is, is that the, you know, the global economy has adjusted to kind of this new reality, and it does, frankly, look like a new reality um, and and that's and that's why we've seen those those prices come back down. So it's kind of good news in that regard. What is it in terms of supply uh, that keeps you awake at night, or maybe you think about at night as far as your family going and being uh, having the energy needs or having their energy needs met? The things that worry you. You know, I, I'll be honest. We're really fortunate here in the Gulf Coast uh, that it's kind of unlikely that I think we'll have some big supply disruption like you talk about. Mm -hmm. But I do really worry about my friends over in Europe. Um, you know, the big thing that they kind of dodged a bullet this winter was that Europe actually had a kind of mild winter. And we were talking about natural gas demand uh, a few moments ago. And Europe really, they did not have the natural gas available to get through a really cold winter. And had it been a super cold winter in Europe, that could have been a really, really, really big problem for them, not only for homes not having the natural gas needed to heat, but also their their uh, industry that uses natural gas as a feedstock. That would have shut down had they not had access to that natural gas, which could have created ripple effects through the economy as people are you know not working and those kind of things. And so the big question, I think, over the next year or so, is really going to be how does the global economy adjust to this new reality of Russian oil and natural gas largely being taken off that global market? And so Russia is the second largest producer of natural gas globally, and they are the biggest supplier to that European market. And so how does that impact us here in the Gulf Coast? It's really going to kind of be those spillover effects um, from that, that European market. So that's the biggest risk out there to me right now. The U.S. government, when it comes to oil and gas uh, in Louisiana and the Biden administration, is it going to be a more restrictive year? Have they backed off of that? Where exactly does the Biden administration and oil and gas in southern Louisiana, southeastern, western Louisiana, and the Gulf, where, where, where does all of that stand? Have they made up? Are they still against it? I'm a little confused. You know, I think a lot of people are confused, uh, Tommy, <laughs> quite frankly. So, you know, when, when President Biden came out, I went, or sorry, whenever he was elected, he, one of the first things he did was put out an executive order. And that executive order on climate change, it discontinued oil and gas leasing while, while this big comprehensive review of leasing practices was conducted. And you and I talked many times of kind of the saga back and forth in the courts with that. The good news is that with the passage of the Inflation Reduction Act, which is ironically uh, named, in my opinion, that was really a, a big uh, climate bill. Mm -hmm. It spent a lot of money on uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions. But one of the pieces of that bill in the negotiation 
was continuing leasing in the Gulf of Mexico. And to me, that is the most important uh, policy that the federal government can implement uh, that impacts us here here locally. So the good news is that that leasing has been recontinued. On the political front, you know, I've had different people, and I, you know, I don't get into politics, but this is what people have told me. They said, you know, some people have said, you know, the Biden administration, they got the Inflation Reduction Act. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Passed. Um, they need to learn how to win, right? Say, look, we got this big climate win. Good for us. Let's kind of move forward and and uh, stop all this discussion of, of not moving forward with leasing. Um, others have said, oh, no, they're now going to double down again. You know, they, the Inflation Reduction Act has passed, but now we're going to look and see what other actions could we do to reduce fossil fuel production here in the United States. And so, you know, I'm kind of hopeful that it will be that former, especially with the high price environment that we've seen. But I think as prices come down nationally and people are concerned less about the prices at the pump and the electricity prices in their home, I think it kind of gets more uh, – you know, more political feasibility to, again, trying to go and, and reduce oil and gas production, um, which, which of course, would negatively impact us here in the Gulf Coast. All right, let me take a break. We'll pick it up here. We come back, 919. Tommy Tucker, WWL, talking to Greg Upton about oil and gas in Louisiana for 2022 and looking ahead to 2023 other energy developments as well we'll talk about those when we come back if you have any questions or comments 504-260-1870 see you going to our jeweler talk and text line i'll pass your questions along when we return here on wwl amfm.com and the odyssey app it is 9 25 on this chilly tuesday morning december 20th we're talking to greg upton our friend associate research professor at lsu center for energy studies about the Louisiana oil and gas industry in 2022, looking back and looking ahead to 2023. Um, Greg, we talked a lot about solar and wind in 2022. Um, your thoughts on, on that? Uh, what were some of the big developments we saw, and where do those industries stand right now, and what are they poised to do in 2023? Yeah, so there's a lot of excitement for solar energy in Louisiana in 2023. So if you look historically, we actually haven't been a really great state for what we call utility-scale solar. Um, Louisiana actually had one of the most generous subsidies for rooftop solar uh, over the past decade. And, and when I say rooftop solar, I mean you and I putting solar onto our roofs of you know of our house. Or well, you wouldn't want well, you wouldn't like want that. me up there, Greg. But I understand what you're saying. <laughs> Why not? Go, go up there and install well, I'm not it. the um, handiest guy. You know what I mean? Maybe I'd be yeah, better definitely. on the ground just handing you this stuff. But go ahead. Yeah, you might want an electrician who yeah. knows what they're doing. Right. Um, but yeah, so Louisiana had a very generous uh, rooftop solar subsidy. So they had a 50% state tax credit in addition to the 30% federal. And so on a combined basis, uh, the government would pay for 80% of the install cost on your rooftop solar. 
And then in addition to that, we had an extremely generous uh, what's called net metering program, meaning that if you were a homeowner and you were selling your power back to the grid uh, during times where, let's say, you're, you're producing solar energy, but you're not home and you're pushing that back to the grid, the utility would pay you the full retail rate for that while a utility-scale solar generation facility, for instance, would be selling that same exact power back to the grid, but at about a fourth of the price that, that you as the homeowner could. So as you can imagine, Louisiana had a lot of solar installations, but this program got pretty expen- expensive for the state. So several years ago, the state legislature, uh, they, they, they ended that subsidy program. And really since then, the shift has been towards utility-scale solar. And so right now we have uh, several hundred projects that are in planning in the state of Louisiana, and these are going to be you know large solar facilities you see when you're driving down the highway. And so I definitely think that uh, this upcoming year we're going to see a lot of those projects move forward, so that's very exciting. How far have they come, Greg, in terms of efficiency of, um, uh, uh, what do you call them, um, uh, uh, attracting, keeping, uh, the uh, capturing the solar energy and storing it and transmitting it, et cetera. Has that gotten a lot better or not really? So the big uh, efficiency gains have actually been, been in the grid's ability to take that energy. And so if you look at sol- the solar panels themselves and the efficiency gains that have happened over the last decade or two, they really have been very modest. Um, I'm not saying there weren't improvements, but these weren't game changers in terms of the technology. In fact, Albert Einstein won the Nobel Prize in the early 1900s for uh, discovering this photovoltaic effect, and um, you know it's, it's a very well-known technology. The big thing that's happened, though, and this isn't just true in Louisiana but all over the country, is we have invested as a country billions and billions and billions of dollars in the transmission infrastructure that's needed to take those energy sources and bring them Uh, to the places that they're needed. And so historically, when you think about power plants that are able to dispatch, uh, you know, on demand, you don't need as much transmission as whenever you have a lot of different locations with with, uh, renewable energy generation that's really variable. So that's been the big advancement over the past decade that's made these these possible. What about wind? So wind uh, is also, I think, coming in Louisiana. I think it's going to be another two to three years before we see our first utility-scale project, and the wind will likely be offshore. And so uh, the reason for that is, of course, the wind just blows uh, harder offshore than it does onshore. Um, And the reason for that is what we call wind shear. So whenever the wind is blowing, as it blows over the land and it hits trees and those kind of things, it slows the wind down. And when you go offshore, you have more wind and more consistent wind. The challenge, though, with offshore is, of course, operating offshore is expensive. And so when you look at the utility-scale wind projects right now um, and you look at the economics of those, they're not quite as competitive as the utility-scale solar projects. Um, but, again, I think over the next two to three years that could really change. And uh, you know, I'm hopeful over the next five years or so we could see a few utility-scale wind farms offshore the coast of Louisiana. We're talking to uh, John Flake earlier, I presume. You know, John? I do, yes, okay, I, I, definitely. I, I don't know how big the campus is. I don't know if you guys get together play golf. I don't know. I see the <laughs> golf course from the interstate. I've always wanted to play that golf course, the big downhill. Th- anyway, 
Uh, he, we were talking about re- carbon recapture, and he used a phrase that I loved. He said, who better to put it back in the ground than the people that took it out? What are the opportunities for the oil and gas industry in Louisiana and existing infrastructure and people that are working in that industry now as it relates to carbon recapture? And could that eventually be even bigger than oil and gas? Yeah, so really, you know, capturing carbon, so we call it CCUS, carbon capture, utilization, and storage. And essentially what this technology does is it takes carbon dioxide that's coming out of some process and either utilizes it for some other process to put into another product or stores it permanently underground. And what makes carbon capture so exciting is that the geology here in Louisiana, I'm told, is very unique and that we have really, really good geology to capture that, that carbon and store it permanently underground. So if we're able to do this and do this successfully, what does this do? Well, it allows our industries, you know, our refining, chemical manufacturing, plastics industries that are very energy-intensive industries and very emissions-heavy uh, industries that ship these pro- products all over the world to tell the world, hey, look, we're producing these products, but we're producing them at a way lower carbon intensity than our competitors. And if we're able to do that, that is going to create an enormous competitive advantage uh, for us here in the Gulf Coast. And so to me, the value of carbon capture isn't necessarily the jobs that is, are created by storing the carbon and you know, those facilities. Of course, mm-hmm. those will you know, have jobs. But the big opportunity to me is for us in southern Louisiana to continue to produce these products that the world needs and, and demand will continue to grow for but in a way that's carbon uh, that reduces our carbon emissions and makes us more competitive. So it's extremely important. Let's talk about nuclear. It, it, it seems to me that we have a clean, and maybe you'll take issue with clean, but it just seems like nuclear could be the answer to a lot of different things. It, generally speaking, is, is that the wave of the future or not really not ecologically friendly? Talk to me about all of that, if you would, please. You know, so it's a really... I think nuclear is not talked about nearly nearly enough, and the International Energy Agency, um, the the president of that, his name is Fadi Birol. He actually was named uh, one of Time's most influential people of the year last year for making this this point that I'm about to make, and that is if you believe that uh, anthropogenic CO2 emissions, that means human induced emissions, are the most important important issue of this century, which many believe, um, and that if we do not reduce these emissions at the clip that we that we have set out in the Paris Agreement of these 2030 and 2050 goals, that this could be catastrophic for mankind. If you believe that, the only technology that we have today to meet those goals is, is nuclear energy, because you're able to produce dispatchable energy it's very large quantities with no carbon emissions at the facilities themselves. And so it's kind of interesting whenever you look at all the, the discussion that's out there of decarbonization, nuclear always, it really does take a big backseat. That said, nuclear energy is not inexpensive. Uh, if you look at you know coal or natural gas generation, those are just going to be less expensive uh, to produce and especially for a new facility. But if you want really, really rapid decarbonization, 
nuclear energy is really uh, under current technologies is perhaps the only way for us to get there by these 2030 and 2050 timelines. And it seems so evident to me who who can't, you know, I, I'm a dumb guy, but if that's the case, why the pushback? Why not the investment into nuclear? Well, there, there's uh, two big factors that I think have, have created pushback. Um, of course, the first is what do you do with the nuclear waste? And so that has been a big question marked for us. There have been federal movements in order to make a centralized uh, nuclear storage facility that is technically very feasible but politically is very difficult because that physically has to go somewhere. And typically the locations that um, you know are proposed for, for the nuclear waste to be stored people locally in those areas have opposition to that. Um, and the second is, of course, you've had issues with Fukushima, Three Mile Island, um, you know, all of these, uh, you know, big kind of catastrophic events that have occurred that I think rightly, Chernobyl. Uh, yeah, Chernobyl, of course, that create a little bit of, uh, of, of opposition there too. And so, you know, nuclear waste and the potential for those, those operational issues Certainly, those are real risks, and I don't want to downplay those risks. But on the other side of the coin, um, if you really want to rapidly decarbonize, uh, this is the technology that we have. And so, you know, can we do it safely? Can we store the waste safely? Um, people within those industries, and by the way, people that, that research this at faculty at LSU here tell me that those are definitely possible things to do. But, um, but you know, it takes the willingness to do so politically. Greg, a pleasure as always. I hope you have a happy and merry and everything else, all right? <laughs> you too, Tom. Covering all my bases. Holiday. You too. Merry Christmas. Thank you, yeah. sir. Merry <laughs> Christmas to you too as well. Greg Upton, Associate Research Professor at LSU Center for Energy Studies. We'll talk to Mike Haas, Voice of the Saints. We come back. They got a chilly trip ahead of them right now, 937, 23 till 10. Traffic on WWL. All-star closer, Kenley Jansen, we have a question. What's the best podcast of all time? Baseball isn't boring, baby. I'm Rob Bradford, and every single day I'm sitting down with the biggest names to show you this great game is the greatest game. It's my podcast. It's my passion. It's a cause I started more than two years ago and is now the most prolific national daily baseball pod there is. Another fact, so jump aboard the B.I.B. Express. Follow and listen to Baseball Isn't Boring, presented by Wasabi Hot Cloud Storage on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.